Welcome to the EPS podcast, Mass Participation Events in Partnership with MEI. Mass Participation Events are a uniquely powerful way of supporting physical and mental good health while raising huge amounts of money for charity. We explore whether enough is being done to support this vitally important sector and how it is evolving. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining the panel on mass participation events. My name is Tupa, and I'm going to be your moderator for the session. And I'm joined by my incredible esteemed guests who will all introduce themselves very shortly. But before we do, if any of you have any questions as we go along, please do scan the QR code, which will just appear on the screen shortly. And by all means, please post some questions in there. I encourage you all to like the questions because the most liked questions will actually get answered by our panels. So that is the way we're going to work. So to kind of give you a bit of an overview with how we're going to run this panel, even though it is mass participation events, we are looking at it from a participatory and spectator point of view. So we're going to really dive deep into the subject area and really dive deep and really get to understand what this really talks about, really. So to get us started, Victoria, would you mind introducing yourself first? Hello, I'm Victoria Brooks, and I was Senior Security Integration Manager at Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games. So my role primarily was the responsibility of all private contracted security, which equated to about 5,000 um, security staff, uh, 1,300 military, um, and then volunteer responders as well. Thank you, Victoria. And over to you, Lindsay. Hi, my name is Lindsay Impitt. I'm a freelance event consultant and event director. Um, I've worked across a multiple uh, multitude of different events from triathlon, netball, London 2012 Olympics, and I feel like I've been every single stakeholder. So I've been a council, run, running events for councils, running them for venues, running them for NGBs. So I guess I'm looking at it from the perspective of all those different stakeholders. The most relevant event for me here with mass participation events was probably the World Triathlon Series um, held in Leeds last year. Thank you, Lindsay. And over to you, Rob. Hi, everyone. I'm Rob Wally from Controlled Events, and my company provide event control support, readiness, exercising, and planning for a range of mass participation events. And looking forward to the panel today. We support a range of uh, sort of marathons. We've worked on mega events, sailing events, quite a variety that involve large crowds. And looking forward to engaging with everyone today. Thank you so much, Rob. And last but certainly not least, Matthew. Thank you, uh, Tubo. So I'm uh, Matt Brook. I am the Managing Director for Europe for Tough Mudder and Spartan. Um, so world and global leaders of obstacle sport and mud running events. Uh, in Europe, we see about 250,000 participants a year, so members of the public that come and participate in our events. And we do about 29 events across 16 countries across Europe, inclusive of the U uh, United Kingdom. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And just staying with you, Matt, on the first question that is pretty much open to all of us here is what would you believe is the biggest challenge with regards to mass participation so far from a participation perspective? I actually think one of the, the biggest challenges is something that we've faced in the current climate of the past few years so out of COVID and obviously where we are with, um, you know, rising cost of living and inflation. And that is actually getting people to commit. Um, it used to be one, and we, we've seen huge, huge shifts in our um, type of customer behavior, our participation behavior, and that um, our customers would sign up very early. We would have long marketing and, and build cycles. Um, 
And now that's completely changed. And you know, our participants are, are pausing on committing um, until very late in the day, you know, talking anywhere from eight to four weeks out. Whereas usually that would be somewhere in the region of 18 weeks to 12 weeks out. Um, and that's obviously really, really challenging because it presents a whole heap of um, questions on scalability, on what you're committing to, on variable costs that we have per participant. Um, you know, what are we ordering in? Um, so, you know, it's certainly one of our, currently as we speak, it's one of our like real and biggest challenges. And it's ultimately needing us to redevelop and redefine how we look at our event delivery and the model that we approach um, with it. Thank you, Matthew. And I want to, Victoria, if I bring you into this conversation, obviously you recently delivered the Commonwealth Games. So from your experience, from a spectator's standpoint, what were your challenges that you faced with the competition? Yes, I think mine would be more around the safety and security and making sure that the balance is right in accordance to the threat and the risk that it poses. And then in terms of the spectator basis, preparing everyone for that security posture and making sure that everyone's aware that there might be a search on the way in or there might be additional security guards around. Um, we are getting ready to see the new protect duty, Martin's Law, if anyone's aware of it, which essentially enforces security posture on any event over 100 people, um, particularly for mass participation, park runs, things like that, it will start to come in. So it's about educating the public of why we need a security posture, it's there for everybody, and then really making sure that all multi-agency stakeholders take that seriously and that it's got the right posture in terms of, again, the threat and the risk. Fantastic. Thank you, Victoria. And then, Rob, I'm going to come over to you because you obviously are a security company. From your standpoint, you know, what, were your, what challenges do you sort of face when it comes to mass participation events? Yeah, so we support a lot of different event organisers and security firms and others. And I think the biggest challenge I've seen since COVID has been around budget. So everyone's really price sensitive. Those runners that you were mentioning there, those participants are really price sensitive. So we're seeing organisers, security providers really struggle to invest in the areas they should be investing in. I've seen security incidents, security risks, adverse weather, loads of challenges and, and quite different crowd behaviours. We're seeing crowds behave in quite different ways since COVID. And it's very hard to get organisers to invest in readiness and in planning and in measures when the, the price sensitive nature of their operation means they're struggling to be viable. So yeah, I certainly see some of those as the top challenges. Thank you, Rob. And then from your perspective, Lindsay, from a world triathlon and your experience there, what, what challenges did you sort of find from that perspective? Um, I think the first one was definitely around getting people back into it after COVID and proving that it was a, a safe and secure event. Um, so making sure that uh, we were providing all of the facilities that were expected. I think expectations of people who are attending have definitely gone up. Um, I think in some ways also it's about replacing those people that haven't come back. I think there's, a, there's definitely a core who will always support mass participation events. And mass participation events are still performing well, not quite as high as post uh, as pre-COVID, but they're still performing okay. And uh, a recent survey said that you know more people had planned to come back. But how do we then replace those people that aren't gonna come back? Um, I was reading a report recently, uh, the, the, the people that we've lost, so say the over 65 year olds who maybe don't want to do these kind of events anymore, how do we replace them? But also how do we give them something different that maybe tailor, is more tailored to what they're after? Because they're a, a group of people that, that we need to be helping and supporting from a health and wellbeing perspective. The other element is also commercial sponsors who um, perhaps are looking for something different. 
the value exchange for a commercial sponsor now is not so much tailored towards, I'm going to expose my brand, you're going to see my brand everywhere. It's what can you do for me as a brand from a social consciousness perspective. So for me, they're the two challenges that we've been facing. Fantastic. And just staying with you, Lindsay, if I may, based on that challenge, how do you think people can overcome it? What, what advice would you give to organizations to overcome that challenge? From a commercial sponsorship perspective, I would say it's, events are becoming more about impact and purpose. I know this was a, a later question that we're perhaps moving on to, but what can a um, sponsor sign up to that is showing that it's giving more back than just trying to get your money or trying to get your interest? With the uh, Formula Kite Surfing Championships, which is taking place in Portsmouth in September, I'm going to try and remember my dates there. Um, that is an elite event, but we're trying to engage with sponsors who maybe want to support our social impact programs. So how we get more youth into the sport or out onto the water to meet those social to uh, address those society issues. Um, I just think it's a really different way of looking at it, not I'm exposing my brand, but what can this brand do to show that it's helping with the issues in the country at the moment, whether that's you know kids who need something to do, whether it's helping with the cost of living crisis, et cetera. That, that purpose is so much more impactful than it ever used to be. Mm, no, thank you so much. And Mandy, if I come to you really quickly on you kind of mentioned in regards to the users and people who are actually coming to the event. So how do you find that, you know, post-COVID, how that has changed and the consumer experience generally? Yeah, I think, um, and this is actually a really nice segue because it, it ties quite closely to what, what Lindsay shared on um, in terms of purpose and value. And our, our participants are um, really placing value on the shared experience more than ever. Um, you know, and, and what is intrinsically is it providing them or others around them? We're obviously built on, for example, I use Tough Mudder, it's obviously built on the notion of teamwork. It's obviously built on the notion of shared collective experience to overcome obstacles. But more now than ever, it's not necessarily just that, you know, the natural journey in which the participant is going through, but it's what, is they, what are they left with at the end? And it's the same thing when, you know, when we think about sponsorships. Um, and so you think about the user experience, or how are we customizing, or how are we changing or adapting our events to deliver them something that's tangible at the end? And yes, okay, it might be memories, but is that thinking about their, what is their customer journey? What is the angle in which they're approaching our events from? Are they doing it for fitness purposes? Are they doing it for a laugh with their friends? Are they doing it to, to fundraise? Are they doing it to champion a, a cause? Are they doing it um, because they want just a challenge? And therefore, it's about the tailorization of that journey. As soon as they've clicked registered, and as soon as they are, you know, the intent is there, and they're, 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 you know, they're with us. It's what are we offering them that is bespoke, that is tailorized, that is going to resonate with them in a way which other things don't. Because we know at the end of the, you know, we know at the end of our, one of our events when they cross the finishing line, they will have those lasting memories. But it's how do we capture that? How do we keep them engaged? And then how do we communicate to them afterwards? And actually, just I'll point that. Lindsay raised earlier about repeat custom and repeaters. And that is a fascinating, fascinating challenge, I think, that is um, verberating across all participationary organizers and indeed elite, uh, elite sport um, when it comes to spectators. But is three, three years were lost. Three years of talking and engaging to a participant, a customer, a spectator were lost because we weren't doing what we were doing, what we set out to do, our whole business models. And to recapture that person because that person has moved on. Um, and so there's an awful lot of new custom coming into our industry. Um, 
but it's the tailorization, the engagement, the content, the what is making it relevant is what is going to drive that re-engagement of that repeat customer. No, thank you so much, Matt. And just coming to you, Rob, from your perspective, from a security standpoint, how have you found spectators and their behavior? Have you found that the behavior has changed at all? What, what, what's been your experience? Yeah, certainly the last few years has been really different. And since COVID, having worked on men's Euros, women's Euros, um, large-scale events like New Year's Eve, quite different behaviors from um, spectators. And actually, as a control room, we're always trying to think about plan A and how we advise and give good information and spectator experience, mass participation event um, attendees, how do we give them information about the weather conditions that they're coming into or good information for them to make good decisions. But we're also seeing a, a newer, younger crowd. And as people have said, there's kind of people coming in who haven't been through events before. Um, and we are seeing quite different behaviors from people. And it's a real challenge. How do you engage with them, give them good information, become an authoritative, relevant source of information pre, during, and after the event? And from an event control perspective, that helps us if there's an incident. But if we're giving them good information, then that's going to be yeah, important for their kind of participation as well. Sure, thank you so much. And Victoria, again, coming to you, obviously the Commonwealth Games was and is a standalone event, but how did you find the spectators and how they behaved you know, during the competition itself? Yeah, I think the Games was very much focused on how it's inclusive and accessible to everyone in the West Midlands particularly, but then everyone out of that region. And I would say that the Games was unique to a lot of other sporting events that we're seeing now. It's very opposite to the football landscape and the behaviour there. And actually what it did was introduce a much younger audience to sport and sports that they've never been exposed to before. Um, we had beach volleyball, we had table tennis, we had sports that you wouldn't necessarily see in our mainstream society. And at the Games it was very much inclusive. We had people from all over the world, different age ranges, and it was coming together on that shared value of seeing that sport and being a part of that experience, which kind of set the tone for the crowd behavior in that way. Then if you look at football, which is a different landscape, it's obviously different behavior, but the games brought everyone together. It you know, was inclusive so that they had that shared goal and that experience. Um, which obviously maintain the crowd behavior in that sense. No, fantastic. Thank you, Victoria. And just staying with you, if I make it, you raised an interesting point on how the consumer, the generation is changing. So do you find that this new generation is different to traditional and the way it has been before? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, definitely. I, I particularly say the under 18 year olds. So if you reference back to COVID, um, like you was mentioning over the past three years, that was three years that they've lost out on those experiences and when we do have more sports that are available that are accessible in terms of ticket pricing how do they get their public transport it is bringing in that younger generation um, and looking at kind of grassroots sports how do we get people involved in sports moving forward the local community and that engagement and i suppose the game set that catalyst particularly for the west midlands to you know make that more accessible across the region and not be a restrictive sport um, so it definitely opened it up in that sense to a much younger generation. Sure, thank you. And Lindsay, coming to you, if I may, on the changing demands of the next generation, have you found that they're now a bit more clued up on being more sustainable, you know, wanting more technology involved in the games? You know, what's your take on, on that changing demand from the next generation? I think that question makes me realize that I am not the younger generation anymore. Um, and I need to learn from them to understand how best to deliver events for them. Just as an example, I was reading recently that they, the majority of 11 to 17 year olds, they actually use YouTube as their number one social media platform. And I had assumed it was TikTok. I don't know about anybody else. But it, so for me, it's about learning from them. Um, sustainability that you mentioned, I think that is 
a huge part for mass participation events moving forward. Just as an example, not so much mass participation events, but there was a young runner called Innes Fitzgerald who was due to fly to Bathurst in Australia to compete in the World Cross Country Championships. And she actually refused to go, her first opportunity, I think, to compete at that level because she didn't want to fly around the world. She didn't want her carbon footprint to be added to or to, to add to the carbon footprint of the event. And it's certainly something that we all need to think about moving forward, is how we actually make our events more, more sustainable. We can all say that we are going to have refillable water bottles, no single-use plastic. Great, that, that's, that's the first step. But we need to make sure that we're not greenwashing. We're not saying we're doing things that we don't. And we need to really have a positive impact on our surroundings. So that's the first thing I think is really being driven by that younger generation. Almost on the flip side of that is the technology element to it. Um, you know, the metaverse, AI, all of these things that are starting to creep into major events are things that will filter down to mass participation and will all be something that we need to think about. We need to think about how these events are consumed. If the consumer is now consuming highlights packages rather than full broadcast, how are they going to actually consume an event in person if they only want to see the best bits? So all of these things, I think, for the younger generation are, are things that we need to be aware of. But that's why I get members of the younger generation into my team, because I'm going to admit everything that I don't know, and I want to learn from them. Fantastic. Thank you, Lindsay. And same question to you, Matt, in terms of the um, younger generation and the ever-changing ever requirements. Yeah, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to focus on a topic, again, that um, both Victoria and, and, and Lindsay covered there um, around technology, in particular social, and the consumption um, of our events. And no longer is, as I mentioned kind of earlier, no longer is finishing and crossing the finishing line um, the be-all and end-all sum. And it needs to be shareable. Um, it needs to be something which is going to make noise and going to make impact uh, to both their own lives because they want to they want to talk about it they want to um, but also to to others you know that is where the majority are of um, you know we talk about UGC content and UGC is now the most authentic way to be able to engage you know gone are the days of influencers gone are the days of paid advertisements you know. Thanks to Meta, they're making algorithms more and more challenging. So you can't actually reach our customers. Um, but can I ask a question? Yeah. What is UGC content? Being an older person, uh, user-generated content. Of course it is. Thank you. There you go. Um, so you know, and and so it's creating moments in our events that allow our customers, our users, to generate their own content to make the experience specific to them, and that is completely different to. Um, what we once were doing, and this pre, pre, even pre-COVID, um, but you've been a seismic shift in the last kind of five or six years, and you know the the stock photo that you get with your event photographer is old hat. It doesn't matter if you include it because guess what, everybody's including it. Um, but what is the moment that's going to create the noise, going to create the buzz, going to leave that user, that participant, thinking, "Wow, I'm going to get my phone out. I'm going to be part of this moment. This is." virality, um, and I'm going to be a part of it. And so that, that's the first thing that's been huge. Talking about, um, you know, again, Lindsay shared there about media consumption and uh, YouTube and TikTok. Video, video is the most um, engaged format of media. Um, and it's outstripping st static um, imagery. 
So don't, don't get me wrong, photos still have their place. Of course they do. Um, but what are we creating and how are we creating it? We are looking in Spartan, for example, globally, on a product that is purely media ready because our elites who would go off on a 21 kilometer, two hour race is not media friendly. It is not what the generations, current generations, um, you know, and why by, you know, current generations, I even talk from anywhere in the region of, you know, 11 through to um, 35, 36, our, our main audience um, in Spartan and Tough Mudder. And so we're creating an entire whole product um, we're simplifying the course. We're going down to a 3K distance. It's based on heat. It's based on, um, you know, the notion of it's high octane, very quick, very consumable. You, you get what you need, you're in and out. And that's not only through the way in which it's being consumed and presented, but also the way in which it's being participated. Because that's the other thing as well. Gone are the days in which, um, you know, people want it now. They want it quick. Um, so, you know, the, it's a double-edged sword, you know, as I said, what we've got in the current product is about UGC and, and what is that moment. And what we're building on is something which is going to expand. It's going to create longevity because it's going to be how it's being able to be produced and consumed. Thank you, Matt. Before I ask, um, come to you, Rob, we're going to be asking the next set of questions after Rob has um, answered his question. So please uh, just have that questions ready up there. So, Rob, from your perspective, from, a, from the changing consumers, have you found that you've had to adapt yourself? to this new crowds coming through from the events that you've participated in? Yeah, definitely. So a couple of our clients, um, Limelight Sports Group, who run Hackney Moves, they've really evolved their sort of half marathon concept into multiple days of festival activity. Um, going back to what I said before about how the, the audience wants to engage in, in something for much longer than just the running event itself. So that's been really interesting to see how a multi-day event has now come out of a, a one-day half marathon with different lengths of competition, different youth groups, um, you've got schools engaging. That's really, really wide variety of p participation in East London. That's coming up in May. And also our less on mass participation, but our CLGP uh, project in every country, they're trying to bring the insights and the information from a 90-minute broadcast window to the user wherever they are in the world and you're getting the information from the the boats and the pit lane straight to whatever whatever device you're on and you're seeing the same data that the, the athletes are so the really powerful sort of bringing the information to the user um, but what we're seeing in the control room is the real-time challenge of our audience want their information in different ways they're not going to just react to a pa system and a, a vms sign somewhere on the route in and out. They're going to want the content on their own devices if the networks have, are holding up. Um, so actually, the way in which we as a control room need to think about all the different audiences and the means of reaching them in an emergency is now far different to what it was five years ago. So we're always thinking now about how quickly can our media team get content out that's authoritative and relevant to the users who will then start resharing it and they're creating their own kind of authoritative audiences and sort of leads for information. And that's not us, it's, it's often us pushing information out and then making sure it just tries to reach the right people. Sure, no, thank you so much. We're now gonna take a question now from the audience. So it reads, how do you deal with participate, participants rather, committing later and canceling last minute? So I guess this is more of a question directly at you, Matt. What's your take on that? Um, <laughs> that's a tough question, because if I had the answer, the exact answer, um, it would be, would be one of the, uh, the, the golden bullets to our, some of our headaches, especially in, in Tough Hunter and Spartan. We are um, working on looking at, well, well, we're thinking ahead up. In our model of our business, we obviously have multiple events. 
So actually, you can look at a cumulative season um, rather than a specific individual event. Um, and lots of um, the rewards, the variable costs that we, that, that we tend to see, which are impacted by late, early or late participation, um, we, we're, we're increasingly standardizing. And through standardization, um, we're enabling you know, to be able to offset any delays, i.e. if we overorder, then it doesn't necessarily matter because we have the ability to use it at a following event. Um, or we have the ability to customize certain aspects of it, which means it's not reliant on a very long um, procurement or supply chain um, process. So I'd say that that's the first thing. And the other thing is, you know, really, how do we influence it? Well, we're, we're really focusing hard at the moment in Tough Mudder and Spartan on just re-influencing the change of the customer habit um, because it was a circumstance that got the, our customers, our participants into this approach, this mindset. And it's ultimately down to event organizers, ourselves as brands and, and, and promoters, to be able to re-influence it. And, and that's either through... Um, you know, obviously sales tactics, it's through driving demand, it's through like really cool engagement, um, that kind of that notion of you can't miss out. Um, and we're seeing some, we've done a, quite a bit of A-B testing um, through all of our different channels and they're starting to see some success. We talked about video there, we talked about YouTube. But actually, you know, we are seeing um, specifically different markets or different, uh, different um, demographics are, are responding in different ways to the approaches that we're taking. And therefore, then with hyper-segmentation, we're refocusing on, on those in, in the particular methods that we see fit. Kind of gone of the day is the one-size-fits-all um, approach. So that's kind of a bit about how we address just general late like take-up as a whole, but also what we're doing to try and influence it. Fantastic, thank you, man. I want to come over to you, Victoria. Obviously, the Commonwealth Games were quite an interesting case study because they basically got cancelled as well. So, from your perspective, how did you deal with having to have a games move um, from from dates? Yeah, so in terms of planning, it, it obviously has a knock-on effect. We was lucky that we was only put back by a couple of days, um, but that kind of threat during COVID is, is it going to go ahead, is it not, affects all of your supply chain. So when you've got contracts with suppliers for workforce or for building assets or for construction, what does the timeline effect happen and, and how do you manage and mitigate that? So when you're spinning lots of plates at once and making sure that everything is ready for that day and then it's pushed forward or pushed back, it, it can have a budget effect because it could cost a lot more. Um, and go into contingency, or it can mean that something can't happen. But then in terms of spectator capacity, it's you plan to a certain capacity that you think is achievable in terms of ticket sales, and then when you realize that the ticket sales don't hit that capacity, you're then working at a loss. And you've scaled an event up to such a large expectation um, that the services we provided are then not, not suitable. Um, so it's definitely difficult to get it right. I think it comes from spectator engagement, what is the interest, are people going to turn up? And then, you know, forecasting that forward as to, this is the set capacity, this is what we're gonna to work to, and this is kind of that middle ground, um, rather than overachieving and saying, we're gonna get 50,000 when it's not likely. Um, so being real and kind of doing your risk assessments on how much you're gonna spend, what's the outcome, and how does that work in your projects and program plan? For sure, and Lindsay, I'm sure from the many hats that you've worn, you've obviously dealt with, can, you know, the thought of cancellations. How did you have to deal with that from an operational standpoint? 
Um, well, firstly, there's a real difference here, I think, between um, one-off, essentially, startup events, uh, events that maybe happen once a year, or events that you've got, Matt, where you've got lots of events and can then roll those relationships over. Um, thankfully, I haven't had to cancel any events myself because of COVID, etc. cetera. Um, but we've had to work on very much like an ABC delivery model. So A being, yes, we think we'll get everything in and this is what we can provide. B, somewhere in between where we will probably target and see what happens if we don't, but still have committed to people who have signed up to it. And then that brings in expectations. So if people have run or competed in an event before, they might have certain expectations about that delivery level. And if you're only delivering a seat to them, um, how does that impact them for the longevity in terms of them coming back next year? Not so much an issue for the Commonwealth Games, which is a, a one-off startup, um, but that has its own challenges. Matt talked about you know, moving bits of con or th uh, decisions that are made with contractors onto other events. If you don't have those long-term relationships with your suppliers, you can't necessarily have those good conversations. So you need to be, from the start with a startup, really working with those suppliers who um, has, have the same objectives as you, but really building those relationships so you can have that level of flexibility. Um, we all have to understand the changes within our society and within the industry and be agile to be able to deal with them. 110%. And, you know, Rob, coming to you, I'm sure from a commercial standpoint, supplier standpoint, I'm sure you face situations where, you know, events have been cancelled. How have you been able to, you know, manage that and basically mitigate it as much as possible? Um, I'm always a demon gloom person in the workshop with the organiser beforehand, thinking of all the reasons why the event couldn't happen. And I think the real pressure of uh, participant dropout is a real challenge. So that's causing immense budget pressure. So we, we recognise, you mentioned before about Martin's Law, Protect Duty coming up. There's a lot that organisers should and, and will be doing this year for events, but they're going to be doing it within the back of their mind. Participant numbers being challenged, participant dropout, uh, sponsor pressure that was mentioned as well. Um, so against that backdrop, what, what areas do they invest in? Is it your sort of natural hazards response? Is it your security? A range of different scenarios. And, and I think that's going to be a real challenge for organisers this year. I've certainly found that readiness planning and actually workshopping through with stakeholders um, and your suppliers what the kind of key scenarios might be so no one's surprised when something goes wrong um, is really, really important because we're going to have those relationships for planning the next year's event. Um, having good insurance, having those conversations with all the key stakeholders before you need it is really important. Fantastic. Thank you, Rob. And just a note to the audience, we have about 15 minutes left of the session. So if you do want to get your questions in, please, by all means, do so um, just in time before we, we close. But my next question to, to you guys is with regards to circling back to um, the user experience. So from your own perspectives, how best do you believe you can optimize that user experience? And then just starting off with yourself, Matt, if you may. Yeah, I think um, just for optimization, it's just about understanding your customer, your participant, your spectator. Um, and the more you understand it, the more you will then understand the full cycle of their journey. You know, we talked about it before, but what does pre-event communications look like? How is it tailored? How is it specific? How is it going to provide what that particular participant, that particular audience member needs? Um, we obviously talked about the event, but the event, you know, in, you create moments in which, um, you know, we obviously talked about earlier about UGC content, but how therefore that the audience, the participant makes it their own. And then you talk about the life cycle, you know, the, 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 the after journey and 
How do you bring it together? How do you um, talk about, you know, how do you celebrate that moment? How do you reinforce that moment? Um, how do you provide them with the segue to continue um, or to engage? And, and, you know, I use that from a participatory perspective of we obviously want people to do more and more events because more and more events is a good thing. But seemingly, we want them just to be doing events because anybody in the participation space is a good thing. Because believe it or not, a triathlete's going to do a mud run, who's going to do a marathon, who's going to go and do an ultra run. Um, it's, it, for some people, it's hard to get your head around. For us, it's okay. We understand that an audience member might go and do a triathlon in two weeks' time, but that's okay because they're still part of it. They're still active. They're still doing things. Um, but I guess you know, and, and the lasting impact though is therefore you know, is making that relevant, and that is where you just need to think on on, on the on that user experience as a whole. Don't just sit there and say, we put on an event, we get medals, you have a famous person at the start line, we're going to post on Facebook, because that isn't going to suffice for the user experience anymore. Um, think the whole life cycle. Sure, no, thank you, Matthew. And then coming to yourself, Victoria, um, looking back now, obviously the games have now been delivered, but from your perspective, what do you think could have been done? You know, if you had to really go back in time, how best do you think you could have utilized or optimized that user experience? Yeah, so I think the games did this really well in terms of the lead up to the games. And it wasn't just a two week event in Birmingham. It was two years of planning for the West Midlands that everyone was involved in. They had countdowns, so we did two years to go, a year to go, and a year and a half to go in different pop-ups and activations across the city in the West Midlands to get people on that journey. Because from the moment that the events announced and released, that's where that spectator journey begins. That's where the excitement begins. That's when people start forecasting, have I got annual leave at this date? Can I go to this? Have we got the funds to buy our tickets? When do tickets release? So it's from that very moment that it's, that it's announced that that spectator journey starts. And I think it's important for event organizers um, to really focus on the afterwards. So what's the legacy? So one thing that the games did really well was they had a Gen 22, which is Generation 22, which is a campaign that now supports young people and children in the West Midlands, into grassroots sports, into local communities, and into opportunities that they wouldn't have had before. Um, they teamed up with Birmingham City Council and West Midlands Combined Authority to make sure that that legacies continue. In terms of funding, in terms of accessibility to kit, to all those barriers that would have prevented people beforehand um, can now enter that as part of that legacy program. And I think definitely it's from the moment that it's announced and then it's not ending after that because people still relive that experience if all of those checkpoints and those spectator touch points have been done correctly. Fantastic. Thank you, Victoria. And Lindsay, amazing segue into this topic of legacy. What's your take on it? Firstly, I think I'm a one-person advocate for getting rid of the word legacy, uh, because legacy for me is post-event. It's what happens when an event has gone. Uh, the word that I am absolutely banging the drum of is impacts, and it's actually being seen a lot more through um, mass participation and elite events. And by impacts, um, we're really talking about the impact that the event can have on society, whether that's physical well-being, uh, mental well-being, social connection, um, sustainability, which we've already talked about, and also the ED&I agenda. Um, they're the three things for me that really um, show that events need to be looking at to see how they are having an impact. And that impact needs to start from 
the moment that you're, you've got the bid or you're 200 days out if we're talking the, the major events or actually all the way through the year for Matt and his team um, with the events that continue to work through. How is, I'm going to throw it over to Matt shortly, but how is Tough Mudder Spartan helping the, the, the government's agenda on physical health, public health, mental health? How is a major sporting event like the Commonwealth Games bringing people together to have that sort of um, advocacy of the city, uh, that community feel? We really see that in every single major event that we're pitching for at the moment, particularly through UK sport. Um, impacts is the most important thing that we can look at, and that's what events need to start doing. Matt? Yeah, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree anymore with what Lindsay said. Um, you know, we're in the business of changing lives. Um, and as corny as that might sound to people, um, stand on the finishing line and watch it. You know, stand on in the stands and you watch your, you know, you're, you're watching the athletes in front of you and the emotion that it's drawing from a spectator. Like, that is changing lives. And how, you know, what we therefore need to do with our events is show that, showcase that showcase the ways in which it changes lives be that we're making people fitter we're making people healthier we're making people choose the right lifestyle choices to you're inspiring people and let's talk about inspiration um because inspiration is the impact inspiration isn't a legacy um and you know and, and i think when you understand um the value in which your event proposition holds you'll understand the way in which it can impact people. Um, an impact doesn't mean that you have to do something different. You don't have to completely overhaul the way in which you do. You just have to make sure it's the presentation of it is clear to your participant, to your spectator. Um, and that can be done through theater, that can be done through, as, as we talked about earlier, you know, uh, content moments, sharing moments. That can be do, done from the, the quite literal signposting somebody to understand what they're, you know, what it is. It can be done the whole consumer and customer journey, um, you know, what to look out for. We think about the speaking about spectator sports and the Commonwealth Games. I have no doubt the media team are like, "What's up in Alexandra Park today? We're going to see some world records. You want to be a part of it? Wow!" Um, but through to us, you know, it's 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 about you know understanding what that impact is. And then the other big part is about education. And we're really, really fortunate. Um, this is not a plug, I promise you. Um, but we're really, really fortunate that we work with uh, Lidl, um, the supermarket, and we create uh, what is called Lidl Mudder. And it's a roadshow and a showcase where we go and um, we, we reach communities, children in communities, and we present um, opportunities to participate. It's highly subsidized, thank you, Lidl, um, who cover 90% you know, uh, of the costs. And it's about, um, it's about a segue, it's just about getting children active regardless of, um, uh, you know, uh, ability, disability, accessibility, um, community reach groups, etc. And by doing this, you know, it's bringing people together and it's about education. You know, that it's, here is activity, but it's fun. And that as well is part, you know, we can't just rely on our schools, we can't rely on our um, five-a-day, you know, uh, active health uh, campaigns and messages. And, and it's, it's through that education piece as well, by understanding how you can educate certain target groups, groups within your e event, is also so important. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Matthew. And if we can have any questions from the audience, please. 
No, just like one last question. Um, what is the minimum threshold for an event to become massively participated? I guess, again, coming back to yourself, Matt. Sorry, I'm just going to read. What is the minimum, <laughs> minimum threshold for an event to become massively participated? Uh, I'm not sure I'm fully <laughs> understanding that, that question, but I think, you know, for us, it has to be able to um, make sure that it's, uh, you know, that, that it's A, it's got a, a core repeat custom base, B, obviously, it's, um, it's of a particular scale. I think in, you know, most... Uh, local authorities that we deal with perceive events of 500 to 1,000 people um, plus to be a, a mass scale participation event. Um, you know, and then I, I think from there, when you will know in terms of your hi historical delivery um, model and, and, and where is, like, what is a, a large number, I think in, across the board, you know, you look at events on, on when we think of large scale events, um, when we think of spectator or participatory numbers, it's really you're looking at numbers of 10,000 people plus as a whole. That not, doesn't necessarily mean participating. That's coming to enjoy the event. And I, I don't know if, you know, um, Victoria, correct me if I'm wrong, it's probably one of some of the KPIs or the models in which you would define certain aspects of the Commonwealth Games. Um, so, yeah, I think hopefully that answers that question. Fantastic, thank you so much. And just to sort of end and conclude this session in particular, we're just going to finish off with all of you just kind of giving your, your key takeaway. So there's different people in this audience um, this, um, this afternoon. So if you had to give one key you know, piece of information you know, to the audience, what would that be? Starting with yourself, Victoria. Yeah, so mine will be um, centered on security. So apologies, but it, it would really be to, to look and research on protect duty and Martin's law. What happened in Manchester 2017 is not something that we want to happen again. Um, and when we're talking about mass participation, any venue with that threshold over 100 people will be included in that. So my takeaway would be to any venues or organizers or um, anyone involved in the event sphere to go and look at Martin's Law and Protect Duty. And you know, educate yourself, seek advice if needed, but just put security at the, the full focus of your events, whatever that may be. Thank you so much, Victoria, and yourself, Lindsay. Thank you, Thibaut. Um, I think mine would be for event organizers to be agile, to keep learning from colleagues, learning from other people within the industry. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, it's also to keep learning from the younger generation and to keep, you know, give them a voice and listen to what they're looking for because they're the audience that we're aiming at. Fantastic. Thank you. We'll go to Rob and then we'll conclude with you, Matthew. Um, I'd say, yeah, linked to, to what was said there about uh, Martin's Law, I think readiness is really, really important. So mass participation events, a lot of organisers have had a similar delivery model for a number of years, and that model's now needing to change. And some of the examples are raised there around how events are evolving. It's the time you spent preparing yourself for uh, incidents and plan B, plan C, incident, uh, events going wrong. I sound like the doom and gloom club, but it, actually that time is really, really worthwhile. You think of uh, our, the athletes practice and prepare and have that muscle memory to, to perform at a really, really advanced level. And actually as event organizers and suppliers, although there's lots of different pressures, investing that time in, in your readiness pre-event makes an absolute difference in the performance on the day of uh, when you have something go wrong. Thank you so much. And last but certainly not least, yeah, no, I, th I would say, you know, and I'm, I would give it very specifically from a mass participation organizer perspective, um, is go and reevaluate your data. Go and re-understand your participant, your customer. Um, because what you think you know 
you probably don't know. And I say that in an abundance of having been through that in our own organization. And I think about you know the scale and the privileges that we have in terms of um, some of the data flow and understanding our customers and, and what we're able to do on a, as a global business. But every single operator, large or small, in the participationary game has data. P people have to register to, to partake. So just go and spend some time. That time will be invaluable because that will influence everything you do from marketing to the operational delivery to how you're talking commercial sponsors. And because I, I promise you, if you continue just to think it's the same as what it once was, i.e. three, four, five years ago, you will be left behind and you'll continue to face troubles. And the more you then go and dissect that and you understand that, you'll be able to see things differently and make refinements and that will really, really help. Fantastic. Thank you all very, very much. And audience, please join me in giving my esteemed guests a round of applause, please. Thank you so much.